0: You would have seen this many times in your career, I imagine, that sometimes the worst judges of a situation might be the nearest and dearest.
1: We're now 46 years on and I think this is the last role of the dice for the family.
0: And because Frank Drack was a good enough creep, that protected what you would regard as the real creep. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we again speak to Ron Idles, former homicide detective, still a very busy investigator. His Homicide with Ron Idles program goes to air on Channel 7. The final episode will be about the abduction and presumed murder of a 12-year-old boy called Terry Floyd. In 1975... A young boy, a 12-year-old boy called Terry Floyd, hitched a ride from Maryborough, where he lived, over to Avoca, And he played Monopoly all afternoon with one of his friends at the local post office where the friend's family worked. And late that afternoon, he said he would get a ride back with the same person who had brought him across. And I think he went up to the highway corner where he was going to catch his ride back to Maryborough and he stood on the highway and he basically disappeared. He was spotted, or a boy like him was spotted, standing near a panel van, but he vanished. And Terry Floyd, it seems clear that he was abducted and murdered. And unlike the Gina Rosato case, you're fairly confident that you know who did it. But the mystery is proving it, and the mystery is, is where's little Terry's body? That's a, a different sort of mystery. When did you first become closely aware of the Terry Floyd case? I know that you didn't work on it originally. Otherwise, it might have had a, a different result.
1: So in 2000, I was at the Homicide Squad, and I was also responsible for the Missing Persons Unit. And I got a phone call from a young journalist at Castle Main and she said, oh, I want to write a story about a 12-year-old boy, Terry Floyd, that went missing in June 1975. Can I come and see you? And I want to bring Terry's sister, Cheryl, with me. So I said, oh, by all means, come in. So uh, they came in and uh, initially um, Kerry's sister was quite uh, irate. Um, she said, look, what's the police done about the disappearance of Terry? Uh, we haven't heard anything uh, probably for 10 years. By this stage, it's 25 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And and I said, look, to be honest, um, I don't know anything about um, Terry's disappearance. Uh, I'll have to find uh, the file and then uh, I'll read it. Yep. So eventually um, found uh, basically a cardboard box which had uh, the disappearance of Terry Freud written on it and there was a, a folder in there with some statements, information reports, newspaper clippings, and it was... Uh, Very basic. Cheryl had told me that they knew who was responsible. Uh, His name was Frank Drake and he had a nickname called Uncle. So I had a look at the file. Uh, I then made contact with her and I said, Look, the best that I can do is I'll take it to an inquest uh, so that at least we've got a document, uh, an inquest brief, and let's get a coroner to make a determination on it. I think back in 1975, a missing person didn't really have to go to an inquest, but when the Coroner's Act changed later on, it was if someone went missing and you believed that they were deceased, you held an inquest. So so I started to uh, investigate it. I went up to Boca, Maryborough, and started to look at trying to find the witnesses. I established that uh, Frank Drake, had actually died,
0: Yeah.
1: Frank Drake was someone who was a pedophile. He associated with the Rovers' under-15 football team where Terry played footy. And from all all accounts, I think it's Frank Drake, or his nickname Uncle, drove Terry to a bokeh. Terry went to see two of his mates. They weren't home, so then he went to the post office and played Monopoly all afternoon. And Mrs. Jeff said to him, well, how are you going to get home? And he said... This is
0: the post office lady, mother of his friend. Yeah, yep.
1: Oh, Hunk's going to pick me up at five o'clock. So at around quarter to five, they walked down to the corner of the highway and uh, his mate uh, left him there and walked back to the post office. Now, what I established was that at 4.30 on the day that Terry disappeared, Frank Drake was in Meriburra and... Two people had seen him and one was his sister. And I was able then to say, well, it can't be Frank Drake because at quarter past four and 4.30, he's in Meriburre and Terry is still 20 minutes away out at Avoca. Yep. So there's a lady who is going to go and work on the telephone exchange who looks out the window and she sees a light-coloured 1968 HK Holden panel van and a young boy fitting Terry's description standing beside the passenger door. Yeah. Three or four minutes later, she looks out. The panel van's gone and so does the boy. Right. Then there's another guy who sees the panel van on the side of the road heading towards Meriburah. It's stopped, uh, described the same panel van, and a boy standing at the side of the panel van uh, and, again, believes that to be Terry. Then you get to the top of uh, a hill where it's called a box-flat track. And the panel van is stopped. And this is around quarter past five. It's basically dark. And she sees uh, the panel van and a boy um, standing at the back of the panel van or the side of the panel van. The local uh, detectives start their inquiries. And there's three or four people who have vehicles similar. One's the local mailman. but he's, his is a ute with a canopy, so he's he's ruled out. One is a guy who was travelling from to Adelaide. Uh, he's interviewed and uh, he's ruled out. And the other one is a guy by the name of uh, Raymond Jones. So he lives in a caravan park at uh, Miraburra. He's spoken to two or three days later. He makes a statement and he says, well, I was in ochre on the day i worked at a service station i was cutting wood first and then during the afternoon i went to a service station which was closed but a mate of mine and and i worked on a car there and i left there on dark and i drove to miraburra i had a shower and i came back because i was going to go for dinner with my mate now the detectives see a pair of overalls. They think it could have blood on it, so they take the overalls. So that's that. So when I start going through it, I look at it and yes, he's got the same car, a very similar car. Then I established that at the time, Raymond Jones was on bail for sexually assaulting a young boy in a toilet block at Ballarat.
0: That you'd find that fairly interesting.
1: I find that very interesting, Um, but what I find more interesting is that uh, when Jones applied to be bailed out in relation to that offence, Dr Alan Bartholomew, who was the head psychiatrist at Pentridge, had prepared a report for the court, and what he said is uh, Jones uh, should not get bailed, this man is impulsive, and he has the propensity to kill.
0: And that's a fairly damning assessment from... Someone like him from Bartholomew who would often appear on the other side in these cases.
1: I've always found Dr Bartholomew, um, someone who would always assist the defence in a a positive way, but here he is saying to the defence, "Yep, your client shouldn't be bailed out because this person has the propensity to kill.
0: Yep, that's pretty damning.
1: So then what you've got is later on I went up and I interviewed Raymond Jones.
0: Yeah, what did you see when you met him? What sort of man is he?
1: Well, I knocked at the front door and straight away he was very defensive once I introduced myself. Yep. And he said, I'm sick of you blokes harassing me. Just leave me alone. I've done nothing wrong. And I said to him, I've never spoken to you before. Yeah. And from what I can see, the last time you were spoken to was 1979, so I don't think anyone's harassing you."
0: By this time, he's moved to near Mildura.
1: Yeah, he was living uh, at Red Clips. So uh, I took him back and uh, I interviewed him uh, at the police station there. And what I think is there's about an hour and a half discrepancy uh, in his time. So he says, I leave voker on dark. And we know that it was getting dark at five o'clock. So if he leaves around five o'clock and I say to him, Well, did you see a young boy? No, I didn't. Yeah. So he leaves at around uh, 5 o'clock. He's got a panel van identical to the panel van that three witnesses see. Yeah. He says, I drive to Miraburra. I don't talk to anyone. I had a shower at the caravan park and I came back. Now, it's 20 minutes to Maribor, Allowing 20 minutes to have a shower, 20 minutes to drive back, that's an hour. So he should have got back to Avoca at 6 o'clock. Yep. But from what I can work out, he didn't get back to a boker until just on 7.30 because he went to the hotel to have a meal. And the special of the night was ham, steak and pineapple. And the kitchen was closing and there was a dispute about whether he could get the meal or not.
0: Oh, how did you find that bit out?
1: There was something in the file and then... Good detail. I say to him, well, you know, there's a problem with your time. There's an hour and a half out. Now he denies any involvement in it whatsoever. Yeah. So then I said to him, look, why don't you have a polygraph, right? Yeah. Uh, they're not admissible. If you have a polygraph, I can't use it. Uh, but if you pass, my promise to you is you'll never see me again. If you fail, I can't use it, so it's a win-win. Yeah. So he said, oh, I'll think about it. He contacted, he got legal advice and the answer was, no, I I don't want to. So in the end, I put an inquest brief together. I nominated him as a suspect, a person who couldn't be eliminated. Right. So the coroner came, listened to all that, but in the end, the coroner found that there's no doubt that Terry was deceased. Yeah. But he didn't go as far as saying how Terry died or whether anyone was responsible. Right. Now, if you look at, I suppose, as a circumstantial case, you've got... Jonesy and Evoker on the day. Yeah. He leaves at the time that Terry is standing on the highway. Yep. He's on bail for sexually assaulting a boy in a toilet block. Yep. His panel van fits the description. Yeah. And the big one is Alan Bartholomew saying this is the person who has the potential to kill. Now, there's three things, I guess, that you look at um, when you're investigating a homicide or, or something like this. And yeah. Does the person have the opportunity? Yeah. Does he have the means? Yep. And is he capable? Well, yes, he has the opportunity because I say he would have driven past him. Yeah. Does he have the means? Yes. And is he capable? Well, yes, he's already on bar for um, sexually abusing a boy and Bartholomew says he has the propensity to kill.
0: In general terms, without going into detail, this man has remained active over many years. Is that right? Has he got into other trouble?
1: Yes, he has.
0: Right. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt. A new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Are we to think that at the time in 1975 that friends and family and probably local police and just local people assumed, understandably, that the man they called Unk, the well-known local creepy man who hung around the footy team and known pedophile that he was probably responsible and somehow that blinded them to other possibilities is that is that true
1: i think that's possible
0: did that did that sort of shield jones
1: i think in the end it probably did because the family um yeah uh, terry's brother um daryl and cheryl and others believed it was frank drake so once that's out in the community people don't think about anything else other than oh well it was frank Drake.
0: you would have seen this many times in your career i imagine that sometimes the worst judges of a situation might be the nearest and dearest to a victim because they fixate on the person they think's guilty for for whatever reason it mightn't be a good reason and then they can't shake it it sort of imprints itself on their brain and that's that and they can't they can't see or hear anything else and and as you just outlined, that can alter the way other people see it because uh, people believe them and say, well, they know they're, they're the they're the family. Has that happened at different times in your career?
1: Yes, and I think a classic is um, the murder of Michelle Buckingham and Shepparton in 1983. Yeah. The police actually charged the by the name of Gregory uh, Gledhill and it went to committal and the magistrate, which was an inquest, said, well, there's no evidence that he's done it and he was released, right? Yep. Now, everyone in the town believed it was Gregory Gledhill for 30 years. So he was treated appallingly. And then Cammie Mills, who now writes for The Age, um, wrote an article in the Shepherd and paper. Yeah. And when I went back and looked at it, I came out publicly and I said, I don't think it's Gledhill at all. And then someone came forward and said, well, I'm going to tell you who it is. So the whole town in Shepparton believed that it was Gregory Gledhill, so then they don't come forward with any new information. So the the gossip around Miraborough and Oroka was always, it's Frank Drake. So then no one comes forward with new information.
0: And because Frank Drake was a good enough creep, it protected what you would regard as the real creep. Tell us about Frank Drake. Why did people suspect him in the first place? Do you know much about him?
1: Well, other than he uh, gave out the lollies at the under-15 football, always associated himself with young boys. Yep. I think he had a prior conviction for pedophilia. Yep. People would say, don't let your boys in the car with uh, Frank Drake. Yep. Uh, He was the son of the Lord Mayor. Right. He was a pedophile. And then there was another person that named, mentioned his name was... uh, Peter Webb, but I went and saw him and uh, he said, well, it's not me. And then, then I found out he was actually in prison at the time, so he was ruled out. So,
0: Alibis are interesting, aren't they? And I think when you checked a little bit deeper, you traced a garage owner who had been a garage owner at Avoca back in 75, and this was Riker's garage, a man called, I think, Nick Riker, he was a new mechanic in town. He had this garage with a residence at the back. And I think that Jones, the suspect, claimed that he had spent all afternoon there with his friend working on a car. And you thought, well, I'll I'll check this out. In 25 years later, you know, when you come to it, you thought, I'll check this out. What happened there?
1: So... Jones had claimed to have been working in the garage for about three hours up until just on 5 o'clock. Um, so I tracked Nick Riker down to Western Australia and I had a phone conversation with him. Yeah. And I said, I'm looking at the disappearance of Terry Floyd. And then I started to ask him who was in his garage on that day. Yeah. And he goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well do you know um, Raymond Jones and do you know his friend? Yes, I do. I've only known him for about three or four months. Well, they claim they work on a particular car at your garage. He said, absolutely, no way. Yeah, why? Well, he said, I still run a mechanics business. No one is allowed into my workshop unless I'm there, but particularly on a Saturday when it's closed up. And the other thing was, My wife and three kids live at the back of the garage. I'm not going to let two people who I hardly know uh, in my garage without me being there. And he said, I know where I was. I was at the football at Lexton that day.
0: Yeah, and a pretty pretty impressive witness. Clear, decisive person, isn't he?
1: He has got no reason to lie, but what he found surprisingly was 25 years later a detective's ringing him to ask him about something which he probably should have been asked around the 30th of June 1975.
0: Exactly. One or two days in would have been nice. And to some extent, Jones was able to get away with this bodgy, bodged up alibi all those years. Somehow or other that stood up.
1: Uh, Yes, but then if you really want to drill down, whilst it's nice to know what they actually did that afternoon, at five o'clock, a vehicle which I say is identical to the one he owns is parked, and a young boy beside it. So,
0: yeah, yeah. So you got that anyway. Yeah.
1: You know the three sidings on on the highway are, are crucial. Yes, I'd like to know what he did during the afternoon, but quite clearly it wasn't at the garage.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, well, it would at least make him a liar. That yes. would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any suggestion that the person that was with him that day, allegedly working on the car with him, so a person allegedly with him, his mate, that he would have any knowledge of any of this or any participation or knowledge after the fact?
1: I don't think uh, participation, but again, I go back, we're now 46 years on and I think this is the last roll of the dice for the family Yeah, because people are getting older. But I do believe there are those that are close to Jones, whoever they may be, We'll know about this, and yeah. again, we want you to come forward. There is a man who's now deceased. His name was Buster Allen, and yeah. he uh, told someone that told somebody who told Daryl that Jones put him down a mine shaft. Now, the closest mine shaft to Box Flat Track was the Morning Star Mine Shaft, which we ultimately dug to the bottom and we didn't find Terry's uh, remains. But bearing in mind, there's something like 70 mine shafts up there.
0: Plenty of them, and they're deep and they're full of rubbish and they're very difficult, very hard work. The shirt that was found in the Morningstar, it was a miller, a reddish-coloured miller check shirt, I think. Uh, Do you believe it might have been Terry's?
1: The issue is if Terry went down the mine shaft...
0: Why uh, would you take his shirt off?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Unless he had taken his shirt off earlier and just wanted to throw it away separately, yeah.
1: And it was a, a mine shaft where people used as a bit of a local tip. Yeah. And then the, butcher, the local butcher put carcasses in there. And initially we thought it was 25 metres deep, but I think it went for 75 metres or something.
0: Good God. Yeah, it's a long way.
1: And, and Daryl is now digging another mine shaft. And, you know, you've got to admire him. He's travelled on most weekends just to dig looking for his brother.
0: So we have this, this sad story. Daryl was the youngest brother of the family, I think. Is that right? Yeah. The little, little brother. And he's grown up with a shadow of Terry's disappearance and, and murder hanging over him. And it's really blighted his life, hasn't it?
1: It has. And I've, I've often said to him, Daryl, it's time to give up. You're, you're becoming the victim. It is going to eat you. It's going to destroy you. Uh, And then he says, but Ron, how can I? It's my brother. And then I think about it and I think, well, I'm not walking in his shoes. He now runs the Terry Floyd Foundation and he's trying to give back to the community so that there's an awareness and underprivileged children can benefit at least some financial things from the foundation. So he channels good energy into that but he still uh, will never, ever give up looking for his brother.
0: It is a most Touching story, really. The devotion of a man who's spent probably all his adult life driving back to Maryborough, back to Avoca, from where he lives up on at Albury, I think, devoting every spare weekend, every spare hour and every spare dollar to this, this uh, holy grail, you know, finding his brother's remains. It's enormously touching. And someone out there, on might... As a result of watching your show on television on Channel 7, or even listening to this, they may well think, I've got a little tiny piece of the puzzle here and now I can, I can hand it in.
1: It would be fantastic and it would just, it'll never provide closure, but it will give them the answers so that they can readjust their lives and try and move forward to some extent.
0: Yes, it's a shocking, shocking crime. It's one that echoes down the years, And we'll be back after this to finish our story. Ron Idles, it's been an honour to have you on board. You fight the good fight and you've fought the good fight even though these days, you know, you're not doing it on a salary anymore. You're doing it because you can.
1: I always believe that, you know, if you can keep some things in the public arena, they'll always get information. I've informed the Cold Case Unit that both of these stories are coming to air and hopefully that there will be some calls to Crime Stoppers. So uh, let's hope, uh, thanks to you and to Channel 7, that there are some answers.
0: Well, that's all we can do and that's all we will do today. Ron, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Before we go, listeners, we should point out that Raymond Kenneth Jones has never been charged in relation to Terry Floyd's disappearance and strongly maintains his innocence.
1: My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.